Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA, and today we have a little bit of a different topic as loopers are headed into the river system. That 19.7-foot bridge, it is the lowest fixed bridge on the Great Loop that has no alternate route to get around. So if you're going to do the entire Great Loop, you have to go under this 19.7 foot bridge. So it's certainly a restriction for loopers and the boats that they choose. And our guest today is Patrick Hines. He has done a lot of research on that bridge to try and figure out why its status is such and that it is kind of, um, you know, a limiting factor for boats that can do the Great Loop. So we'll jump into that topic in just a moment. First, I do want to take a moment, as always, to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes & Associates, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners and viewers to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. So I'd like to go ahead and officially welcome Patrick Hines to Great Loop Radio. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Kim, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this is interesting because I've been asked a lot of questions, of course, over the years about that 19.7 foot bridge. I had a little information, but certainly not as much as you have managed to collect. So it should be a really interesting discussion. Um, But first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. We can see that you're on a boat. So tell us a little bit about that and, and your looping plans and why in the world you decided to take on this research project. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a former Chicagoan. I, I boated extensively in Lake Michigan, Chicago River. I even did the Chicago sort of mini triangle loop that you can do where you go down the Chicago River, Cal Sag, and back up to Lake Michigan. And uh, and then about 11 years ago, I was transferred out to Los Angeles. And so I'm actually on a boat in Marina del Rey, California right now, just north of uh, LAX Airport. And uh and our plan is when we retire, my wife and I really want to want to do the loop. Uh, I think probably everything we faced on the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> heading out from Marina del Rey to Santa Catalina Island, with all the rough waves in the oceans, probably prepared us for probably anything the loop can 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 throw at us. And so, definitely interested in doing that uh, when I when I reach retirement for for work in a, in about nine nine years from now. So yeah, excellent. And so this bridge, what? piqued your interest about it. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, again, you know, I've always been fascinated by the by the bridges in in Chicago and by their um you know, the, the architecture, particularly the moving bridges. You know, uh, Chicago has some of the most frequent drawbridges of of any of the big big cities. And every winter when I would move my boat up the river, although I'm not a sailboat, a lot of times I'd be going at the same time as many of the sailboats and would see the bridges kind of opening. And so I became you know, fascinated with this bridge and, you know, does this bridge ever open and why is it so much shorter? And so I kind of uh, I kind of went into a, a research mode and looked into a lot of kind of aspects um, of, of the bridge and and, you know, why did it ever open? When did it open? When did it stop opening? You know, wh- how did how did it end up being? again, like so much shorter than the others. And so one of the things I'll, I'll be kind of sharing today is some of the fruits of that research as, as well as some of the pictures that have kind of come out of, that, out of some of that research. Yeah, and I do, um, on that note, I do want to mention, Patrick has a lot of slides that go along with that that yes. he's going to show us. 
Um, we are very um, cognizant of the fact that the, this podcast is primarily an audio format. We do put a version on YouTube, which is typically just me and the guests chatting, um, kind of like you're hearing now. But with Patrick having some slides, um, the YouTube version will probably shed a little bit of extra insight. Yep. So those of you who are listening um, in the audio podcast version, as is kind of the standard for this um, podcast, First of all, you can go to the AGLCA YouTube channel to see this. If you go to uh, youtube.com slash great loop, that's our channel. This will be the newest video you'll see for a little bit. And there's also a great loop radio podcast playlist on that channel. So as this starts to drop a little bit down the list of videos we've got there, you can find it there. But I will also post a direct link in the podcast description for this episode. So if you're on a podcast yeah. app and you can go to the app and see the episode details, you should see a link. So Perfect. with those instructions out of the way, yeah. um, Patrick, feel free to share your screen when you're yep. ready. And, um, but, and Kim, if you, yeah. if you don't mind, if you can enable the screen sharing. I am I so sorry. Says, yep, no I tend to um, goof that up on a regular basis. No worries. Um, okay, try that. Okay, perfect. Okay. And I'll try to describe for the folks that are just listening what I'm showing. And so actually the first thing that I'm showing is actually a picture of the bridge. And I think this this picture really does a great job of kind of illustrating what the problem is. Uh, you can see the tugboat. There's a tugboat here pushing barges under the bridge. And of course, right, all these canals were initially built for commercial traffic. Obviously, we as recreational loopers have taken advantage of it. But here's a here's a tug that because of its height, it actually made it all the way from, it could make it all the way from Mobile, Alabama or New Orleans, all the way up until this bridge. And you could see it's it's significantly taller than what will make it through the bridge. And so this actually illustrates the problem, you know, quite a bit in, in that it's 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 a barrier not only for recreational traffic, you know, but but also for you know for any um, uh, commercial traffic as as well. Because oftentimes, even to get barges under the under this bridge, they have to have. There's actually some ballast companies that specialize in coming, loading up the barges with ballast so they can go lower in the water, just so that they can clear the bridge. And then they're met by a tugboat on the other side that has a movable bridge or movable um, pilot house that then have to basically pick up the barges from there and move them the rest of the way in, into Chicago. So it's a, it's a it's a pain again not only for loopers who maybe want to buy a taller boat but for but for commercial traffic, you know, as 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 well. Um, yeah. And I, I should mention Patrick um for those of you, you know, we kind of mentioned that loopers would be headed this way soon. I'm not sure if we've actually mentioned exactly where this bridge is. Yeah. So it yeah. is a little bit outside of Chicago um, on the Illinois waterway. So it's not the Chicago yep. River. Sometimes there's some confusion there. Um, regardless of which route you take leaving Chicago, you will have to go under this bridge. Um, it is at mile 300.5 on the Illinois waterway, which is roughly in Lamont, Illinois. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, it's it's the lowest in on this particular waterway by a good bit. It's not like the next one is 19.8 feet. Um, so how yeah. does it how does it in general compare to the other bridges on the Inland River? So, so my wife thought it was crazy, but I actually went and researched all 160 bridges that were on the route between Chicago and Mobile, Alabama. And. Of those 160, 129 of them are fixed. They, they, they don't move. 
31 of them are movable. And when I say movable bridges, and I think most people understand this, right? A movable bridge could be a drawbridge that opens like this. It could be a lift bridge, or it could be like this bridge once was a swing bridge, which basically swings out of the way to open for, for boats. And, and again, just to summarize, and again, most people know this, you know, when you go from Chicago to Mobile, you're going over a total of 12 rivers and canals. And this bridge, which is currently owned by the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, is the shortest on the route by about five feet. And so what I put together here, um, Kim, is just a summary of all the different waterways that the loopers are going to go down for all 1,263 miles of, of this part of the of, of how many movable and how many fixed bridges. And just a couple of call outs that I want to do here is initially as you go through the Calumet, Little Calumet, and 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 initially the, the first part of the CalSeg channel, the bridges are a minimum of about 25 feet. So they are definitely the lower ones on the whole whole canal, but they're still, you know, a full five, uh, five and a half feet taller, you know, th than this particular bridge. Once you clear this bridge for the whole rest of the way down to Mobile, Alabama, the minimum bridge clearances are up in the 40s. So, you, you know, you don't really have to worry about any any bridges at all once once you go through this this particular bridge. And it's interesting because as I was researching the, the bridges, I had two sources that I was going to, Navionics and then the U.S. Army Corps of Engineer uh, river charts. And one thing I found with Navionics in particular, with many of these bridges, is there seemed to be some data errors in the in the rendering of the Navionics information. Sometimes it would uh, reverse the vertical and the horizontal clearance of the bridge. Sometimes it would report the bridge clearance in meters instead of feet. In some situations, the bridge clearance was missing. And so as a result of that, the authoritative source for me ended up being all the Army Corps of Engineers charts, river charts, because those charts, with the exception of one bridge, uh, were very accurate in terms of in, in terms of where the bridge was and uh, and and the clearance of the, of the bridge. So. Yeah. And that's great information. And I have a lot of sailboaters who um, will very much appreciate this chart because they're looking at, you know, where can they potentially put their mast back up? Mast. So obviously, depending on the height of that mast, um, for some of them, they can probably put it up right after they clear this bridge if they choose. Most typically go all the way to Mo Mobile before they attempt to do that because you're not going to do much sailing on those inland rivers anyway. But yeah. OK, so by five feet, this is the lowest bridge um, on the inland rivers. Uh, we should also point out that this is um, the lowest one on the loop. The next lowest one is over on the Erie Canal. So we'll talk about that perhaps at the end um, yep. so that, you know, if we can figure out some way to resolve this particular bridge on the Illinois Waterway, what would be the next issue? Um, but go ahead and uh, tell us about the bridge's history, why, you know, yeah. um, when it was built and was there a particular reason that drove the railroad, if they were in fact the, the builders, to build a bridge in this spot it's kind of fascinating and and luckily i had a historian that i was able to interview because i was i actually filed a number of freedom of information requests for different government agencies to try to get some information on, on the bridge and the metropolitan water reclamation district which is the agency that really built the sanitarian ship canal they actually put me in charge of their historian who has written four books on the rivers and the canals around around Chicago. His name is Dick Lanyon. Fascinating books that are available up on, up on Amazon. And this is actually a picture in 1895 of the construction of the Sanitarian Ship Canal. And you can see by looking at this picture, 
they were cutting through, which is incredible to do this in 1895, hard granite um, and, and, and bedrock to basically blast it out of the way to make the cut for the canal. And we, met, we think about a lot of cases, right? Bridges came after the waterway. Well, in this case, the railroads were already here and this, you know, uh, 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 Santa Fe rail line was already here prior to even 1895. And so what you can see in the foreground of the picture is they had to basically take the rail bed and first, first put it on a temporary trestle so that they could start to blast all the rock away uh, from, from around the bridge. And then at the same time, then go ahead and start to basically um, uh, basically start to build build the bridge. And I'm just going to um, advance here a couple slides to show kind of like this is now 1899 when the bridge is pretty much complete and you can see the completed bridge. And now they're starting to basically dismantle the, the temporary train trestle underneath and start to blast away uh, the granite rock from underneath uh, so that again, it, it, it becomes you know, a, a navigable uh, waterway. And then here is a picture from the April the following year of the completed canal the water flowing through. It was actually a midnight uh, opening of the canal because I, I think some people know the history, right? This canal reversed the flow of the Chicago River. And one of the reasons they built it and the reason it's called the, the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal is in the late 1900s, all the sewage would go into Lake Michigan. That's also where the drinking water was coming from. And so that became very problematic and made a lot of people sick. And so by putting in this canal, they basically reversed the flow of the Chicago River the other way, which meant all the sewage was getting flushed towards St. Louis. And so St. Louis went to court in the middle of the night to or filed a suit to basically stop the opening of this canal because they didn't want all the Chicago sewage coming their way. And so Chicago then decided to open the canal in the middle of the night um, to try to you know beat beat the lawsuit or, or, or the court decision, I suppose to to open things. So maybe that explains the whole Chicago Cubs you know St. St. Louis rivalry that still happens to 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 this day. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So um, it, really fascinating history and the idea that the bridge was built and finished before any boats ever came through. Um, of course, boats were typically smaller back then, um, so yeah. they probably thought they were building it plenty high. But you did find some evidence that it was designed to be a swing bridge. But you also yeah. found evidence that when it opened, it was not able to swing. So tell us about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I'm going to pop up here. And this is them in, in September of 1898, basically starting to lay the foundation for the bridge. And, and the foundation was laid like directly on to the bedrock. And you can see them clearing out so that they had a flat place to basically build build the foundation. Now here's a picture of December, and these are rollers that they're basically pl placing for the bridge. Well, why would you put rollers on a fixed bridge? Well, you put it so that the bridge would have the ability to eventually pivot and open all the way, and these rollers would allow the mechanism of the bridge to basically roll the bridge around this particular pivot so that it could open for, for boat traffic. But what I found, even though that this was actually um, placed there, when we look at this picture from 1910, which is after the Santa Fe Railway had put dual tracks into the bridge, one thing you would expect to see in this picture, if in 1910 the bridge was able to be opened, would be 
a split in the rails. And as you can see, if you look at this photograph here, the rails are basically continuous as they go onto the bridge bed, you know, from, from the from the shore. And so clearly in 1910, although the bridge was built with rollers to have a future capability of, of opening, it didn't actually open um, at the time. So it was almost like they future-proofed the bridge, but they didn't actually bring it all the way to actually install the motors and the mechanism and so forth um, to enable the, the, the bridge to, to open. Now, I found a little further evidence because next door to this bridge was a street bridge for Stephen Street and for the town of Lamont, because you mentioned at the beginning, right, this bridge is located in Lamont. And so this was a construction photo of the bridge for Stephen Street, which was right next door to it. And again, it was initially built without, um, you know, without any machinery. But in 1936, at the height of the Great Depression, they basically installed the motors, the gates. They they put an ad in the paper to try to hire bridge tenders so that they could have this bridge in Lamont be able to open. Almost, you know, in the Great Depression, there were a lot of efforts to put people back to work and do right. construction projects and hire them. Mm -hmm. But it was observed in the Lamont Herald that even though they did all this effort to make this bridge openable or, or able to be open, now, you know, less than 50 yards away, you have this rail bridge that doesn't open. And so it's almost like a little bit of a boondoggle, the fact that they made this other bridge to be able to be open just to now all of a sudden hit this wall, you know, at, at, at the very next bridge. So, so it's interesting because even in 1936, then there was references to, yeah, the bridge looked like it was built to be able to be opened, but they didn't actually follow through with, with the opening machinery. Right, which is really fascinating, especially when they're going to that effort and a bridge that is, is so close to it. Um, I have always heard that it is a uh, railroad bridge that used to open, but no longer does. Um, and in our kind of our pre-interview, you said that actually is true. They did at some point make the bridge so that it could swing. So tell us yes. about that. Yeah, so I'm going to, let me just, whoop, here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward. So, right. So then now you have 1941, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the United States enters World War II. So with the U.S. entering World War II, German U-boats started patrolling the Atlantic coast and were devastating American shipping. They were sinking merchant ships. They were sinking, you know, cargo ships and, and other ships. And it became a desperate situation where the U.S. had to replenish all of these ships that were being sunk by the German U-boats. So the solution was to basically take all these Great Lakes shipyards that traditionally had only built boats that would sail in the Great Lakes and started building warships, submarines, and, and and other ships that could be used to World War II. The problem was, right, the, the St. Lawrence Seaway was not yet built. And as I, and I think as you observed earlier, you know, Kim, the Erie Canal itself has some challenges with clearance and, and, and the size of the locks and everything else. And so the solution was to be able to start to run, build these warships up in Wisconsin and, 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 and other areas of the Great Lakes and then to be able to move them through the Chicago River system and the Illinois River system all the way down to New Orleans so that they could help with the Allied war effort. And so I found in my kind of newspaper research in 1942, 1943, there were all sorts of references to the Navy paying to make all of the bridges on the uh, Sanitary and Ship Canal, as, as well as the South Branch of the Chicago River, being able to make them uh, open. And so the Navy paid for the conversion 
they they basically manned these bridges and there's even references to this specific bridges at this excuse me this specific bridge to a crew working on the bridge in you know summer of 1942 installing the motors and the machinery so that this specific bridge could start to open for uh uh warships that were being built in the Great Lakes and being moved down to New Orleans. And there's a really cool picture I have here. And this is actually in one of the locks. So this is in Lockport. And believe it or not, that is a submarine um, that they built and they put it into a floating dry dock because the, um, the water draft on the Illinois waterway, as many loopers know, is really only nine feet in that area. Submarines require a larger amount of of draft and so they had to basically put this sub into a, a a floating dry dock to be able to move it through through the waterway they ultimately came they ultimately built 28 gato class submarines up in manitowoc wisconsin it employed 7,000 workers during world war ii again the subs had a 15-foot draft which is why they had to be put in the in the in the cradle um these submarines ended up sinking a total of 132 Japanese ships during World War II. 25 of them saw action. And then four of them ended up being lost at sea. And actually two of the wrecks of those four lost submarines ended up being uh, discovered in the last uh, 10 or 15 years uh, because it was always a mystery of exactly where they were where, where they were sunk. But anyway, a fascinating kind of chapter of, of war and how that waterway that the loopers are using now was really a critical artery for the war, war effort, you know, during during World War II. Yeah, uh, Patrick, definitely a unique part of history that a lot of people don't realize that submarines were actually built in Wisconsin. We are actually um, sitting in Charlevoix, but headed over to the Wisconsin side of Lake Michigan and should be in Manitowoc within the next week or so. So I'm excited to see the museum that yeah. they have there to that effort. Um, let's take a quick Absolutely. break and play a message from one of our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, perhaps when did it stop swinging yep. and, you know, some other interesting history about the bridge and we'll, we'll finish up with where it stands today. So we'll be back in a moment. Prop Talk is an Annapolis-based company founded in the summer of 2005 by active Chesapeake Bay boaters. The company produces Prop Talk magazine, a monthly newsprint magazine focused on Chesapeake Bay power boating and the lifestyle surrounding boating on the bay. Every issue of Prop Talk is distributed at more than 850 carefully chosen and closely monitored locations throughout the Mid-Atlantic. Prop Talk's coverage goes deep rather than wide, and the magazine celebrates the people, places, boats, personalities, and events that make the Chesapeake one of the world's premier boating grounds. Thanks for reading and supporting the Chesapeake Bay's boating magazine. We're back on Great Loop Radio. My guest today is Patrick Hines. Patrick has uh, done an amazing job researching the history all the way up to the present day of the lowest fixed bridge on the Great Loop Route. It is outside of Chicago on the Illinois Waterway. It is charted at 19.7 feet. It is at mile marker 300.5 on the Illinois Waterway, which is in Lamont, Illinois. And you have to select a Great Loop boat that goes under this bridge if you want to do the entire Great Loop. And that is that is one of the... the um, Hard and fast facts about Great Loop boats. Usually we say that, you know, the best boat for the loop is the one that you choose and it's different for everyone, but it has to go under this bridge. So um, Patrick, just, you know, kind of a fun fact about it. I understand that these, this used to be a route for some of the rich and famous to travel from coast to coast. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll, uh, 
And real quick to answer the question of how long the bridge was opening. So 1948, yeah. it was still opening. And, um, and, and, and by 1951, believe it or not, in 52, there were a couple huge surplus warships making their way up from New Orleans through Chicago. These are kind of fascinating pictures of the ships being able to barely get through the Chicago River into, into Lake Michigan. And so as late as like 1953, we know some of these giant ships would have moved through uh, this bridge. The bridge would have swung open for that. And these ships would have made their way through downtown Chicago again filling up the entire chicago river so now you know the, your question on the the rich and famous and what's the whole purpose of this bridge so it's interesting because and i'm just going to jump this way for a second so in 1930s the santa fe railroad which owns that owns that bridge inaugurated passenger service from chicago to los angeles and you can see in the upper left hand corner longer train station now it's high-end condominiums uh, and the train route would go basically all the way to Union Station in Los Angeles, which is in the lower uh, right-hand corner. That station's still there, and that's still the main train station for Los Angeles, not that far from where I am you know, right, right now on the boat. So it was a 2,227-mile a rail route. Uh, this bridge was at mile 25 of that 2,200-mile rail route. It took 39 hours to get from Chicago to Los Angeles. Um, and this was the first diesel electric locomotive used for a long haul rail route in the U.S. Because when you think about the 1930s, you still think about the old fashioned steam engines. Mm -hmm. This was a, considered a very modern engine at, at the time. And in 1971, when Amtrak took over passenger service, they basically moved the passenger service from Dearborn Station to Union Station, which means that passenger trains no longer go through this bridge. But the really interesting thing is if you think back prior to air travel, uh, sorry, uh, air travel, rail travel was the way that most folks got across the country. And if you think about all the Hollywood stars back in the day, this was considered luxury train. So it had all Pullman cars, gourmet food. It could reach 100 miles, miles per hour on the trip. And so anybody... Anybody uh, who was famous going from Los Angeles to New York would basically take the train to Chicago, spend the night in Chicago, get on a different train going the rest of the way to New York. And so the paparazzi of the day would actually camp out at Dearborn Station to try to photograph some of the, the famous actors and actresses that would come on, on this train. And so you had folks like uh, Humphrey Bogart, Bing Crosby. Lauren Bacall, Judy Garland, James Cagney, and others that were known to have taken this train, and basically they would have passed through that bridge as well as as part of as part of the, the train journey. So anyway, another kind of fascinating. You, we always think of the boats going underneath the bridge. The question is, what actually goes across the bridge? And this was a, a, a certainly a fascinating chapter of, of, the, of the history of that bridge. It really is fascinating. Um, you know, to go along with the uh, wartime history of the bridge. You mentioned that, you know, even into the 50s, some of the warships were moving through Chicago. Um, when and why did it stop swinging? So the theory, my theory is, and, and it's interesting because I have looked in, um, I've obviously filed Freedom of Information requests with the Coast Guard, Army Corps of Engineers, everybody else. Nobody that's actively working in any of those agencies knows definitively the answer to that to that question. Mm -hmm. It supposedly sits in some boxes in the National Archives in, Nash in College Park, Maryland, 
And if I ever get out to Maryland, Kim, I'm actually <laughs> going to go <laughs> go to see if I can find the answer in, in those boxes. But there's no answer online. And my, my, my theory is that when the um, St. Lawrence Seaway opened in 1959, that became the much easier way to move these large ships to and from the Great Lakes because you know, some of the references to these big ships moving through in the 1950s, some of them could barely fit into the locks or almost knocked um, some of the bridge houses off the foundation as they were going through downtown Chicago. And so clearly there was a lot of logistics involved in moving the ships. And so my theory is that that once the St. Lawrence Seaway opened, they basically moved the larger ships that direction. And so no, and so no longer had to open the bridges for really large ships but again it became it's still a barrier for a lot of other commercial and barge traffic and and, and others so yeah it absolutely is and um you know i've had discussions with uh commercial interests um that would love to have that bridge open again um you know you, you kind of showed what they have to do to get some of the barges under that bridge and and with toes that can't so they have to have one on each yeah. side certainly um would be a cost saver to not have to do that you did, um, in your research, you found a couple of kind of missed opportunities when they were widening the Cal SAG, where, you know, perhaps something could have yep. been changed on this bridge. Fill us in on what you found there. Yeah, so what we're, so, what we're seeing in, these, in, this, in this photograph is on the left side, that is actually the Cal SAG before it was widened. So you can see a huge, large barge getting pushed in there, and the canal is barely wider uh, than the barge. So so initially the CalSAG was only 60 feet wide. Barges couldn't even pass each other. And so Congress authorized funds and, and, and authorized a project to basically widen the CalSAG from uh, 60 feet to 225 feet. And in the photograph there on the right, you can see the beginning of that widening project and how much wider it is than the, than the, than the photo on the, on the, on the left. Now, because of some government funding delays, originally this project was supposed to be finished in 1962. Because they couldn't get the funding right away, it ended up stretching for 20 years from 1955 to 1975, which is when they finally finished uh, widening the Cal SAG. And most of the cost, um, so it would cost $202 million at the time for them to widen the Cal SAG. And most of that cost was actually bridge replacement because whenever you're going from 60 feet to 225 feet, you have to rip out and replace the bridge with something um, a lot larger. Now this was originally supposed to be phase one of a, phase, of a three phase project. Phase two was gonna be widening or, or making navigable the Grand Calumet River from Gary, Indiana to Indiana Harbor. And then phase three of it was supposed to be to continue the effort around the bend here and start to widen the sanitary and ship canal. Because I think loopers may notice if they transition from the Cal SAG to the sanitary and ship canal, suddenly it gets, it gets narrower. You go from 225 feet width to only 160 feet foot width. And so the plan at the time with phase three of this project was to basically widen the ship canal to 225 feet, again, they would have had to reconstruct all of these bridges, including this 19.7 rail bridge in, in Lamont. Now, like a lot of government projects that are contemplated but not funded, phase three was never actually funded. So it was authorized by Congress, but they, the, the government never came up with the money. And so to this day, they've never kicked off phase three 
which is widening the canal. And I think to some extent, right, uh, there, although there still is a lot of commercial shipping and barge traffic on the canal, it's not up to the levels perhaps that um, might have justified, you know, prioritizing the, the, the widening of, of this whole this whole project here. Right. So you've identified a few ways to kind of rectify this, so to speak, um, to yep. allow taller vessels to pass through this area. So explain to us what those three possibilities are. Yeah. And and so I'm here, I'm, I'm zooming out a little bit here, Kim, because you can see, and this is a little tough to see, but you can see the the ship canal and the railroad. And actually on the next slide, I, I sort of illustrated it a little bit better. So um, for folks with shorter boats, right? I mean, obviously the, the amazing experience is to take your boat through downtown Chicago and to go through downtown Chicago, right? You have to have a, a, a boat that's gonna clear a 17.1 footbridge. For folks with a little bit of taller, taller boats, obviously you're gonna go through the Cal Sag. And we you can see on this chart uh, where I've added in, in the arrows, is, is from this bridge, which I've shown in red there, through Calumet Harbor, the rest of the bridges are almost 25 feet high. Once you get past this bridge, right, all the way down to Mobile, Alabama, you're 42 feet high. And so this bridge definitely is an, an impediment and, and a lot shorter than all of the others. And to think that you could go over 1,200 miles you know, with 42 foot clearance all the way to that bridge and then reach that bridge with the choke point, um, you know, is, is, is again, I'm sure very frustrating for, for folks, not, and again, commercial as well as, as well as uh, recreational boats. So to answer your question, where do we go from here? There really are four options, right? And these are actually all pictures that, that are kind of along the, the, the route of the loop. Uh, first option is, could you remove the bridge? Now I mentioned that that bridge used to have passenger traffic, doesn't have passenger traffic anymore, but it still has a lot of freight traffic. So it is one of the key uh, lines. It's called the Southern Transcon Freight Line for the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway. And so they have a lot of freight traffic that goes across that bridge. So removing it really isn't that uh, feasible because it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a main bridge. Second option would be, do you restore it? Do you go back to how it was during World War II reinstall the machinery, you know, oil all the joints, uh, hire a bridge tender, and start start to actually operate it again. That's expensive and challenging because, again, you'd have to have a crew there. Um, you, you'd, you, yes, the bridge would open, but it's, you know, typically, you know, the reason they, they replace over the years a lot of movable bridges with fixed bridges is because you don't want the machinery cost and the, and the human cost of having, of having tenders. So I don't necessarily think that's that's the best idea. Third idea is what happened to that bridge right next door to this bridge. So, um, you know, a little while ago, Kim, right, I showed the original swing drawbridge or swing bridge that was part of the Lamont Stevens Street. In 1981, the city of Lamont went to the Coast Guard and everybody else and said, look, this bridge is over 100 years old. Traffic's backing up each way. It's just not um, it's just not a bridge that that's really practical anymore. And so they wanted to replace it with a modern highway bridge. The Coast Guard said to them, you cannot replace it with another, you know, 19.7 foot bridge. You have to build the new bridge at 49 feet so that's well above and it's not an obstruction to, to traffic. And the city of Lamont didn't love that because they, that meant they had to reroute the bridge and 
you know, it, it couldn't go down Main Street anymore and so forth. But that bridge that replaced the, the almost the twin bridge to this one in 1981 is 49.3 feet, feet. And so that could be a preview of if the ever if the bridge was ever completely ripped out, it could be replaced with one a lot higher. The challenge for the railroad is you can only have trains go up a certain percent grade. And so they would have to, in, in both directions, start to slowly elevate the tracks in order to get them up to that 49 foot. 49 great convenience or expect for, for, for the railroad. And again, it doesn't even buy you a lot because even if you elevated that bridge to 49 feet, you're still going to hit the rest of the bridges on the Cal Sag, which are basically, you know, 25, uh, 25 feet. So what I think, this is just my, my own personal um, opinion, could you the bridge and the screenshot I have here in the Reload, and I think many of you may have seen this YouTube channel, there's a famous bridge in North Carolina that's only 11 feet, eight inches tall. And it's famous because it's, they call it the can opener bridge. All these trucks try to drive underneath it and there's a camera station there and it shows all the tops of the trucks getting taken off. Well, in 2019, they actually raised this railroad bridge up from 11 feet, eight inches to 12 feet, four inches by basically jacking it up and then kind of increasing the foundation underneath. And so I, to me, that's the, probably the most practical resolution with this bridge is to jack it up from 19.7 feet to 25 feet. You don't have nearly as much incline you have to do on the rails. And now that that bridge no longer would be a, um, a bottleneck um, on, on, the, on the loop or to, or to the commercial you know, ships that are, that are having to go through there. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting possibility because, uh, you know, when I talk to people about this bridge, they ask me, well, why don't they, why doesn't somebody make the railroad fix it so it swings again? And yeah. of course, the more common thing with replacing bridges um, on the waterway, lower bridges, is to raise them to, you know, what the Coast Guard is requesting for that area. So, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting thought that potentially it could be raised. From what you have, yeah. obviously, you've spoken to a lot of people about this, from what you have found, does there seem to be an appetite to make something like that happen? Well, there's certainly a path. And, and in my research, I uncovered something came called the Truman's Hobbs Act of 1940. And that's still part of federal law. It's been revised as recently as the 1990s. And basically, the Truman Hobbs Act says that all bridges are obstructions and they're tolerated only as long as they can meet the reasonable needs of navigation. Now, of course, right you know, you have a bridge that's five feet lower than the rest on a thousand plus mile mile route. So so part of the act is it allows the commander of the Coast Guard for that district to uh, order alterations to a bridge so that it's no longer an obstruction to, to navigation. And as part of this law that's memorialized in, in, in federal statute, there's even a spreadsheet, a, a, an allocation would divide the cost between the federal government and the railroad. And so I think the federal government, and there's actually funds to be able to, to do this, the federal government would basically pay most of the cost of moving the bridge, and the railroad would have to, again, absorb some of the cost per a specific formula that's that's part of this particular law. Now, how do you get the, the wheels in motion? So basically, Section 5 of this law says any person, company, or other entity can submit a complaint to the 
uh, to the Coast Guard, to the uh, commander of this particular district. And the commander then under U.S. law is obligated to kind of look into it and say, hey, does this bridge actually um, uh, create an obstruction at all? And so basically, you know, the, the, the person in charge of the 9th District, because this bridge is part of the 9th District of the Coast Guard, is Rear Admiral Michael Johnson. And so any looper, any any commercial instance, uh, interest, excuse me, could certainly write to the 9th District Coast Guard office in Cleveland and basically uh, detail out, here's the facts. Here's here's a, you know, 1,200 mile uh, uh, route where a, you have one bridge that, that you know, um, cuts down the vertical clearance and the Coast Guard would kind of, would have to look into that. I just don't know. and And, and again, part of the requests I've done, Kim, I haven't been able to uncover if anybody has ever actually <laughs> put in that sort of complaint or not, mm -hmm. but it may be worth a try for folks that might be frustrated over what the vertical clearance of their of their boat would be, because there is a whole process outlined in the law that the Coast Guard would then follow to determine whether it's it's um, it's required or not. And again, they did it once before in 1981 when the city of Lamont wanted to replace the bridge. You know, they, they forced them to basically build a 40 foot bridge. So given that this is the one last bridge that's a that's an obstruction is that enough momentum potentially for the coast guard to to think about um you know uh uh mandating perhaps a change or right. at least a plan for a change down the road so it's interesting um and and i and i would love to come back sometime kim and do an update if i if i ever make it to college park maryland to <laughs> go through some of those national archive boxes because I do think there's going to be more answers there. It's just nobody actively working in government today. Everybody's long since retired or passed away that has any contemporary knowledge of, of when the bridge stopped basically opening. So. Yeah. Well, and it is a fascinating study that you've done here. Um, and in the, my very limited knowledge before talking to you about this, you know, in my travels around, obviously I talked to a lot of people. Um, there are plenty of businesses that serve the marine population. So boaters, whether they're commercial or they're recreational, um, but along the inland rivers who would love to see more boats be able to get out of the Great Lakes and make it down to Snowbird in Florida or Texas yep. or wherever along the Gulf that they plan to. And right now that bridge is the bottleneck for those folks. And, um, you know, they've suggested that wouldn't it be great if something was done about that? Um, the Tennessee Tom Bigby Waterway, which, you know, is built, it's the one most loopers use, but for those who aren't familiar with it, it it's a Corps of Engineers project that back in the 1980s, I believe, connected the Tennessee River with the Tom Big Bigby River, which allows the route through Mobile, um, it makes it possible to navigate. And that was initially presented and funded as a way to give another another option for commercial traffic to move through the inland rivers and it's never quite realized the amount of traffic they were expecting. Um, yep. And I suspect that this bottleneck has a lot to do with it. So I think a lot of those folks would be kind of interested in this and I will certainly point them to this episode of our podcast so they can take a look at all this research you've done, Patrick. Yeah. Um, and, and because I know we will get this question, um, AGLCA has been asked before to kind of champion this cause. And while we're not against putting some resources into it, it doesn't necessarily solve the overall problem for loop boats. It only gives us about a foot in Another essence. Foot. And what I mean yeah. by that is it eliminates the bottleneck here on the Illinois waterway 
it simply moves that lowest fixed point on the Great Loop to the Erie, Erie Canal. Canal, and it only gives boats about another foot. The lowest bridges on the Erie Canal to the Oswego Canal route, which is the 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 highest higher of the clearances, you have to be able to clear 21 feet. So we're gaining a foot and some inches there if this bridge were to be changed. So it's not kind of the be all end all solution for the Great Loop. Um, but it certainly would help for those boats, you know, that are between 19.7 and 21 feet. So it's an Absolutely. interesting, it's an interesting topic, um, and certainly seems to be more possibility and more precedent for a change than I had realized before. So um, certainly a lot to digest here. Again, for those of you who are listening to the audio of this, as uh, most podcast people do. Um, we do have a link in the description of the, the podcast to the video if you want to check out the slides that Patrick has presented. It will be on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Great Loop. But again, direct link will be there. Um, really an interesting topic and a very timely, Patrick, since a lot of loopers are on Lake Michigan and are getting ready to clear that bridge in the coming weeks. So I want to thank you for sharing this. And yes, please keep us, up, us updated if you do get to Maryland and find anything else. And also, if you you or someone else does decide to move forward um, with that, you know, sort of challenge that it's in impeding navigation. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Cam. I appreciate the time and uh, and look forward to joining everybody on the loop here in a few years down the down the road. Awesome. We'll look forward to seeing you out there and to everyone who has watched or listened today. We want to thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising.